As Trey said, my name is Colton Quarter. Um, I am a member here and have been so for a good while now. We are going to be talking about the uh, covenant God made with Israel slash Moses slash the Old Covenant. It has a lot of names. It's a covenant by many names. Last week, Trey talked about Abraham, and the week before, we talked about creation, covenant with creation, the covenant with Noah, and this is where we are today. This is where we are in our series. This is not the covenant that we're under today, um, but this is what we're going to be talking about. As far as the storyline goes, we progress through creation, through Noah, through the covenant given to Abraham, and now we are here with this covenant God makes with Israel. Oftentimes, if you're reading books, it might be referred to as the Mosaic Covenant. That's because uh, Moses is sort of the main mediator of the covenant, even though his role diminishes because he dies. Uh, and there's going to be that continuing role of priests uh, in the line of Aaron to also mediate that covenant. But we'll get into all of that. So as we get started, let's talk about the election. The election of Israel, that is. Is there another election that you guys uh, are thinking about? Um, let's start with uh, the story of Israel. If we're going to understand this covenant God makes with Israel, we need to understand who Israel is, where do they come from, how do they function in the biblical story. And you really start with the story of Israel back with what Trey talked about with Abraham. Who can remember the three things that God promised Abraham as a part of that covenant that he made with him? People, land, and blessings. I didn't complete this because I didn't want to give you the answers, but that's right. People, multitude of nations, descendants, land, place to go, and blessing. And that blessing is going to be mediated to all the nations, right? Start with Abraham and go everywhere. So that's what he promised. Land, people, blessings. That was extend. And the Israelites are those descendants, so as you think about how the story connects, God promises Abraham descendants, Israel, the nation, are those descendants. So we are expecting this big, mighty nation to come because of God's promise. But if you check in with the people that the, through the line of Abraham at the beginning of the book of Exodus, you don't see a mighty nation, right? You actually see a nation in slavery. Slavery where? Egypt, right, they're in Egypt. And it looks like, from an outside perspective, that maybe God's promises have failed, right? He said, Abraham, I'm going to make a mighty nation out of your people. I'm, kings are going to come from your line. And yet they're here in Egyptian slavery with uh, nothing really uh, to look forward to as far as hope of deliverance. But God's promises have not failed, right? It says, that God hears the cries of his people, and he decides to deliver those Israelites from their captivity so they can go and serve him, worship him, ultimately in the land that God promised to Abraham. And who does he raise up to take them out of Egypt? Moses, Moses right. Moses goes to Pharaoh lots of times over the courses of the chapters in Exodus 7 through 11, demands that Pharaoh let my people go, right, so they can worship the Lord uh, in, in the land that was promised to Abraham. But Pharaoh isn't having it. After plague, after plague, after plague, Israel's, or Egypt's and Pharaoh's hearts just get harder, right? You got gnats, 
flies. If anybody wants it, I wrote a paper in college on the gnats and the flies plague. It's probably awful. I wrote it like a year after I became a Christian, but if nothing else, it would be hilarious. Uh, the gnats and the flies. I think my professor didn't like me that much. He gave me that one. Um, but there's a final, there's this tenth and final plague, right? Huge plague. Uh, God says he's going to kill all of the firstborn sons in Egypt. So the, the destroyer, uh, the, the angel of the Lord, is going to come and is going to take the life of all the firstborn uh, sons in the land of Egypt. And the only way that Israel is going to escape their firstborns dying is through what is going to become known as the Passover. So they are commanded to sacrifice lambs and put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of their homes so that when this destroyer passed through the city, they would pass over the homes of the Israelites because they see the blood, right? So there you even see this motif of salvation through substitution, through the judgment of another. So after this, and his firstborn son uh, being taken, Pharaoh decides to let the people go. That decision doesn't last long. He decides to pursue them as far as the Red Sea. And what happens there? God miraculously parts that Red Sea so that the Israelites can walk on through on solid ground. But then the waters return, right, and crush Pharaoh and his armies in judgment against them. Now, after that, you would think that Israel and the Lord would just dwell together in the land and it would be happily ever after, right? After you literally got freed from slavery and in so doing, you pass through a, a, a sea, right? A big, big sea. It's not small. It's not like Weddington, right? We're talking a Red Sea here. And they pass through it. Uh, they pass through it on solid ground. And what happens after is not celebration. It is momentarily, right? You have a great song of Moses. Uh, but almost immediately, right, they start grumbling and they start complaining. Uh, they, out of their sinfulness, start to even wonder if it was worth being taken out of Egyptian slavery now that they're in this wilderness. So they're saying, can we go back to Egypt, actually, uh, Lord? You know, can, can we not do this whole promised land thing? Can we not do this whole... Uh, law thing, can we actually go back to our centuries-long oppression? And what we're starting to figure out is that Israel's slavery to Egypt was far from their worst problem, right? Their, their problem wasn't geographic, uh, and it wasn't their oppression as much as it was themselves. It was their own hearts. Now, Moses leads the people through the wilderness to Mount Sinai, Whenever God had told Moses to uh, go and to demand that Israel be let go, he says, uh, the Lord says, so that you can go and worship me on this mountain. This is the mountain, Mount Sinai. And this is where God is going to formally covenant with the people of Israel. So this is the real beginning of this covenant God was going to make with Israel. He's making it official. Israel is going to be his people, his treasured possession fulfilling the role that God had given to Adam in creation and to Abraham's descendants in that. This is the, the next step in the process. Now Moses alone goes up on the mountain to receive the law from the Lord because again, we're going to see Moses act as a mediator between God and the people. A mediator just being like a go-between, a, a representative. God deals with the nation of Israel through Moses and then later through uh, leaders uh, like Joshua and through uh, Aaron and his line in the Levitical priesthood. 
And boy, do they need a mediator, right? Uh, again, we've already seen them grumbling and complaining and uh, provoking the Lord to anger. And Moses is going to have to intercede for the people of Israel in Exodus 32, 11 through 14, saying, don't wipe out these people, Lord, because while Moses is up on the mountain, Israel is down there at the behest of Aaron and worshiping a golden calf, right? So they're receiving this covenant with the Lord through Moses on top of the mountain, at the, below the mountain, they're already participating in rank idolatry, right? It's not good. Now, that's the exodus. That's God redeeming Israel out of Egyptian slavery so that they can worship him in the land. Now, they're going to do so in and through this thing called the law, the Mosaic law, the old covenant law, the law covenant. At the very heart of this covenant with Israel is this law, these terms and conditions of being God's people. It's going to teach Israel how to love God, how to worship God, and how to display the character of God to the nations around them, right? God is setting them aside as his image, as the ones that the nation should look to to know what God is like. And they're going to do that by worshiping as he's prescribed, as he's commanded, as he's revealed in the law. Now, this law can be rather confusing. The rest of the book of Exodus is really the giving of this law, and then Deuteronomy is just the second telling of this law, and there's lots of details to take uh, note of. So, as we move through, we're going to think of five C's of the law, the five C's of the law. First, the context of the law. So, it's important to get from the outset that this law wasn't the way that Israel came into relationship with God. They didn't earn their place as God's people through obedience to the law. We see that in Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2. God spoke all these words, I am your God, I'm the Lord your God, who brought you up out of Egypt. In other words, as he's getting started, as he's going to tell them how to live holy lives as God's people, he reminds them first of what he's done for them unilaterally to redeem them, to provide a type of salvation for them. He's entering into this covenant by grace, in other words. God redeems Israel and then calls them to live holy lives. So that's the context of the law, grace. Second, the center of the law, the center of the law. Who can tell me what the first of the Ten Commandments is? What's the first of the Ten Commandments? That's exactly right. You shall have no other gods before me. Exodus 20, verse 3. So worship is the point of the law. God brought them out of Egypt, yes, but he brought them out of Egypt for a purpose, namely to give, to ascribe him glory. God is teaching Israel how he is supposed to be worshipped in every facet of their lives. So you'll see this law is expansive. It has prescriptions for what you do personally, for what you do civically, what you do in the community, what you do religiously. The law was supposed to point Israel to love and to devotion to one true God, right? To Yahweh. So that's the very center of the law, worship. Third, the content of the law. What's the law all about? And when we see what this law is all about, we get a, an idea of what this covenant is all about. The law is about all kinds of stuff, as I just said. Remember, and it's important to remember this, that Israel is being established as a nation, right? They are a, a geopolitical entity uh, like a nation state of today that's supposed to be ruled and regulated by the word of God. They're established as a 
as a literal kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood, uh, and you're going to have aspects of the law that deal with uh, civic life, right? Uh, laws for how uh, punishments for certain things are going to be carried out, and so on and so forth. You're going to see how some of them are, are really specific to their lives as, as a nation. Uh, you have laws that deal with love of neighbor uh, and worship of God, like the Ten Commandments. Um, and as we keep all these different things in mind, as tempting as it might be to separate them out into different sort of categories, we see in the giving of the law in Exodus that all of these different laws, even though they are about lots of different stuff, all function as sort of one whole package, right? So you can't just take some and leave the other. Uh, it all comes to them together. The whole law is, is interconnected, and, and there's no way to sort of separate it out into different categories. They had to follow it all. So that's the content of the law. Fourth, we see the consequences of the law. So remember, we said that uh, a, a key to a covenant, what makes a covenant a covenant, are uh, the promises and the consequences thereof, right? There are, there are terms and there are conditions. And the covenant with Israel that God is making has very clear blessings and curses. So you see that in Deuteronomy 11, 26 through 28. Obedience brings blessing, right? Obedience brings long and happy life in the land. And disobedience brings curses, right? The curses promised at the fall. So at this point in redemptive history, we're really left with a, with a crucial question. Will Israel obey the terms of the covenant and so bring blessing to themselves and to the world? Or are they going to fail? And, you know, stay tuned, but they are going to fail. Now, fifth and finally, the final C of the law. The fifth C of the law, the culmination. So the law is meant to lead to rest. Uh, the Sabbath is sort of the hallmark of this covenant God's making with Israel, where on uh, the seventh day they would rest in a way that points back to how God rested from his works of creation and pointed towards what is eventually going to be their life in the land. And as we think about how this covenant applies today, it's going to point to something much greater than uh, life in the promised land. But God was going to lead them to a place where, uh, again, if they obey the terms of the covenant, they would experience rest from all of their enemies. Uh, again, they're going to disobey and they're going to experience turmoil and tumult at the hands of their enemies and eventually get kicked out. Uh, so they're going to have to have someone come and bring a better rest, uh, which the book of Hebrews picks up in chapter 3 and chapter 4. So as we understand what's going on with this covenant God's making with Israel, we have this story of Israel bringing up out of the Exodus, the giving of the law, sort of firmly uh, and officially establishing them as a thing, sort of when they become a nation. Now let's think about where this covenant with Israel takes place. And what I mean is not so much the law or the land where they're going to, where that's going to be where they worship the Lord, but they're going to do so uh, in and through this thing called a tabernacle. So he, God made this covenant so that essentially Israel would be his people and he would be their God. And he didn't plan, the Lord didn't plan on fellowshipping with them remotely, right? He was going to be in their midst, Exodus 25, 8. There I will dwell among them. God was going to be in their midst with them, but what problem does that pose? So you think, oh, that's really good, but what's the issue? 
Right, yeah, so God's going to dwell with them. Here's the thing, God is holy and Israel is not. All right? God is creator and Israel is creation, fallen creation. So how is God going to have his presence dwell with these people and not utterly consume them, right? How? Well, the answer is found in this tabernacle. So the tabernacle is a super elaborate mobile tent. All right, that's the official definition of tabernacle. Really elaborate, movable tent. All right, I mean, they're going to take this thing everywhere until they sort of plant roots, and eventually they're going to make a temple of the thing under Solomon. But the tabernacle had multiple layers, right? It was different sort of stages as you went in. Each section, as you got closer to the center, became more holy and more restricted, right? You're getting closer to the the holy of holies or the most holy place. And the only people allowed in were the priests, people doing these sacrifices. And Moses set up this tabernacle and the priestly system by God's command. So again, Israel's sin could be atoned for, dealing with that issue of Israel's sin, allowing God's presence to dwell with them. So there were these regular animal sacrifices outlined in Leviticus. So Moses sets up this tent right at the end of Exodus. And then what comes immediately after the book of Exodus? What's the next book? Leviticus, right. So you have God dwelling with his people, and you think, awesome. And then Leviticus 1 is automatically going into prescriptions for sacrifices. Because if God is going to dwell with these people, there's going to have to be sacrifices. And then once a year, there was this thing called the Day of Atonement. And this was the one time each year when the high priest, and only the high priest, entered into the innermost part of the tabernacle to make atonement for his sins, for the sins of the people, and to cleanse the tabernacle with the blood of those sacrificed animals. But here's the thing. Those sacrifices had to be repeated. They had to continue to push back temporarily God's wrath from the Israelites. And they continued, and they continued, and they continued, but Israel eventually just stops making them because they turn away from the Lord. They make it to the land, but instead of worshiping the Lord there and, uh, and participating in these ordinances that God gave them, they turn and worship the idols of the nations. So they're supposed to be a blessing and a light to uh, the Gentiles, right, to the other nations around. But instead, the other nations infiltrate them uh, by uh, Israel going after their gods. In Israel's story, makes it clear that the covenant that God made with them was good. It's necessary. The law is holy, Paul will say, uh, but it wasn't ultimately going to be enough, right? So as you progress through the biblical story, you have Israel being kicked out of the land for their sin, uh, and you see even when they return, things aren't that great. And we're, we're conclude in that the issue is something that this law, this covenant God made with uh, Moses and the Israelites, is not meant to be an end in itself which we'll talk about for the majority of our time to follow. At this point, are there any questions? Any questions about God's covenant with the nation of Israel? What it means, what it was, what they did? So Israel, again, nation, geopolitical nation, different than how uh, anything is today, right? So it's very unique. Uh, and obviously, as we think about in a bit, we're going to have to be very careful with how we apply promises and things 
in that old covenant to us in, in the new covenant. Again, it's a very different thing than, say, the church, or it's a very different thing than, say, the United States. All right, we'll get into that in a bit. But the main thing is that Israel is picking up the responsibilities given to Adam to image God, to represent God on earth, right? Given to the descendants of Abraham, which is Israel. They are going to be the group through which God's promise of salvation comes. Ultimately, in and through true Israel, Jesus Christ. Okay, let's push forward. So, we want to, before we see how this covenant God made with Israel goes forward in the biblical storyline, ultimately finds fulfillment in Jesus and the new covenant, we want to look back, right? We want to uh, see this all as one plan of salvation that God reveals to us through these unfolding covenants. Uh, so let's look back and see how God's promise of salvation comes focused in this nation of Israel. So Abraham's children become a nation. As we said, Abraham was promised a nation. We come from his line. Israel is that nation. It's through Israel's life in the land, under the law, that God's blessing will spread to every nation. In fact, you'll notice that in later parts of Scripture, God explicitly bases his favor on the people of Israel in promises that he made to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, you take Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8, where the Lord tells Israel that it wasn't because they were very good that God chose them, but it was because he made promises to Abraham. So Israel is that next step in the plan to reverse the curse brought through Adam's sin and to bring salvation through Abraham's offspring. Israel is that group, is that nation through which God is going to advance the storyline of Scripture. And they're going to be holding on to the ball for a long time, right? Long, long, uh, this is a long stretch here, right? Well, not super, so you get to David, but we'll get to that. Next, we see a connection that maybe isn't as clear Right? It seems pretty clear, this Abraham to Israel connection. But the connection that people might miss is this connection between Israel and Adam. Does anybody remember what we said it means to be made in the image of God? That was a couple of weeks ago. You've slept several times, I hope. Uh, what does it mean to be made in God's image? You can just shout it. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, absolutely. Uh, it's, it's being created in a special relation to God wherein we are supposed to uh, represent him, to have this, uh, this spiritual fellowship with him, to testify to his character by the way we live our lives, the things we say, what we believe. Uh, we are um, images of the living God, right? We are supposed to point back to him. But as we saw, Adam refused to do that sinned, turned away, rebelled, decided to uh, make much of himself, to turn the mirror inward, and to magnify his own glory. Uh, it means we're created in a special relationship. And the Bible ties the idea of image, of this sort of representative who uh, stewards God's rule and reign on the earth with the idea of sonship. So image and son, sonship, are tied really closely together. So the New Testament identifies Adam in Luke 3, uh, 38 as a son of God. In Israel, in uh, Exodus 4, 22 through 23, is collectively called son. Not sons, but is actually just called his son whenever Moses tells Pharaoh to release the nation from slavery. So 
Here you have Adam as son, as the one meant to represent and to, uh, and to rule in the place of, under the authority of God. And then you have Israel being called son as well, which obviously we're going to pick up as we get to Jesus in the new covenant, uh, Jesus as son, and even David uh, as son. So Israel is taking up the relations and responsibilities of image and sonship first given to Adam in the garden. So you can see there are these organic links between what started in the garden and what's now progressed to Mount Sinai and life in the land with Israel that's going to continue to progress, right? You can see these organic connections. Um, Now, for the big payoff, how do we think about this now where we are in redemptive history, right? We're here, not today. You are here, right? This is where we live now. In the coming of Christ, the bringing of the new age of the Spirit, how are we to think about something here and these promises we've talked about as people who are here? As I said, this might be the most misapplied covenant in the Scriptures that we'll talk about. This might be the most confusing for people to figure out what do we do with what God said to Israel? What do we do with what God made Israel to be now? So we're going to look ahead from substance to shadow, from substance to shadow. So that's not, I got that backwards, from shadow to substance. Trey's like, what are you talking about? We're going to go backwards in redemptive history. So what that means is that all of these things, Moses, Israel, the law, the tabernacle, these things are meant to point beyond themselves, right? They're going to get picked up in the biblical narrative and develop and escalate to Jesus, who is the greater Exodus, the greater mediator, the greater tabernacle, the greater Moses, right? You get it. It progresses through the storyline to get to Jesus Christ. It, it doesn't, it's, none of these things are meant to stay insular and be uh, uh, means or ends in and of themselves. They're means to ends to point us to Jesus, who's going to fulfill all of these things. And when we're taking these Old Testament passages, if we're going to apply them to ourselves in any way, we have to first do so in and through Jesus Christ, right? We have to get to Jesus and the new covenant before we make any jump from here to us today, right? Does that make sense? Uh, Oftentimes, and we'll talk about this, there is a tendency to want to jump from here straight to sort of us in the church, right? The people created by the new covenant, But we want to avoid that because we can get into some sticky situations. So let's think about, I don't know, gosh, several uh, ways in which we see some of these types, these shadows, these patterns fulfilled in Jesus Christ and how those come over to us as those united to Jesus. So first, let's talk about a greater exodus. So we had this exodus story, Israel brought out of slavery uh, in the land of Egypt, And that is the biggest Old Testament salvation event. Uh, And it's super ingrained into Israel's corporate identity. The Lord makes sure to remind them over and over again of what he did for them in bringing them out of slavery. But Israel forgot, right? They get kicked out of the land because of their sin. And the prophets, guys like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, start talking about the people of Israel needing a new exodus. Not from political oppression and not from geographic displacement, but deliverance from what? From themselves. They need to be set free from their sin, and that's what Jesus does. He comes, right, takes on flesh, lives a perfect life, dies a sin-bearing, wrath-bearing death, and rises from the dead so that 
by the giving of the Spirit through union with him, we can be set free uh, from our own slavery to our sin. He sets up his death as a kind of exodus, as a, a departure, because when he dies, he sets us free. Uh, through his life, death, and resurrection, we have our slavery to sin broken. And he enables us to love and to follow him. So we look forward to a greater exodus where Jesus is the one who delivers us from our slavery to our sin. So we, greater, we have a greater exodus in Jesus. We have a greater mediator. The reason that Jesus can deliver us this greater exodus is because he's a better mediator. He's better than Moses and he's better than the priests. That's basically what the whole book of Hebrews is about. How Jesus is better than basically everything that the old, uh, the old covenant had and he is what it pointed to. So the author of Hebrews says Jesus is a better mediator and priest for lots of reasons and here are just a couple. One, Jesus is the God man. So he has this identity as being both God and man. He has a divine nature and a human nature in one person. And God, through the author of Hebrews, is saying that Jesus' identity is better than that of Moses, right? If Moses was this and was faithful all in all of God's house, how much more the one who is the builder of said house? Um, two, Jesus never sinned. So why is Jesus better than Moses? Why is Jesus better than these priests? Well, because he never sinned, and he didn't have any sins of his own to atone for, right? These priests in the Old Covenant had to deal with their own sins and their own weaknesses before the Lord, right, to atone for their transgressions, but Jesus didn't have to do that. Jesus never sinned. Third, uh, Jesus provides a one-time sacrifice on the cross that absorbs all of God's wrath for any of, one, any of us who repent of our sins and trust in Christ, so he secures the full and the final forgiveness of sin. So those sacrifices that the, the old covenant mediators of the priests had to perform year in and year out, and as Israel continued to sin against the Lord, Jesus makes one sacrifice for all time that secures our salvation, that effectively brings us from death to life and no longer needs to be repeated, right? We don't need more sacrifices. Uh, we have the one-time sacrifice that sets us apart and sanctifies us, uh, providing the basis for our justification, our right standing before God, uh, and the, the basis for our whole salvation before God. First uh, Timothy 2, 5 and 6 says this, There is one God and one mediator between God and man, uh, the, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. So that's why uh, in Protestantism, which uh, our Baptist church is a part of the, the Protestant movement out of the Reformation, it was just last weekend, uh, sort of Reformation Day, a.k.a. Halloween. And that's why we don't have priests, right? Uh, we don't need anyone to, to help us gain access to God. Uh, we go in and through Jesus Christ, who is God himself, and who is the perfect son of man. We have access to God through Jesus. Uh, we don't need to, to gain it through other mediators. We don't need to pray to anyone else, uh, for instance. So Jesus is a greater mediator, and, uh, and we have, in the New Covenant, a greater tabernacle. So you're thinking, great, where is that elaborate tent that can move around all the time? Well, it's not uh, a tent anymore. It's actually Jesus. So if you are familiar with John 1, John 1, 14, it says, The Word became flesh and what? And dwelt among us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You may think, cool, what does that have to do with the tabernacle? Well, that verb, dwell, is literally 
tabernacled. So the word Jesus became flesh in the incarnation and tabernacled among us. And then in John 2, 19 through 22, Jesus says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. And they're like, what is he talking about? He just called himself the temple. In other words, God is going to meet with, draw near to his people in and through the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, and Jesus, through his death, gains us access to God, right? So we don't just have to go once a year or be a specially qualified person to. We have access to God through Jesus. Hebrews 10.20, a new and living way opened up for us, right? He split the curtain in two uh, that separated the, uh, the most holy place off from the rest of the tabernacle. And we are invited into that most holy place, into uh, that uh, presence of God into his throne room because Jesus lived and died and resurrected on our behalf. Now, it's not to say that there's not um, a sense in which the place where God dwells with his people is not a place. Uh, it's a place insofar as God has promised his presence in gathered churches, right? So God's people is now God's place where he dwells uniquely among us. So Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am also, uh, a reference in context to church membership and church discipline. Uh, and the church is referred to by Peter and Paul, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Peter 2, uh, as a temple because we are united to Jesus who is the true temple, right? So God's dwelling place on earth with his people is Jesus. Then he can call the church the temple of God. Why? because we are united to Jesus, right? Does that make sense? God dwells with us in and through our union with Christ. And Christ is the head of the church, right? Colossians 1, uh, Ephesians 3, so on and so forth. Now, we also, in the New Covenant, have a greater law, a greater law um, than the law that was given uh, in the, uh, expressed in the Ten Commandments and the other prescriptions that come later on. So imagine... You meet somebody on campus, and you're having a conversation with them over lunch. I don't know if you probably, I don't know what you guys do these days as far as meeting people and trying to do evangelism, obviously. Uh, it's probably tougher in these COVID times, but uh, you, you sit down, and they say, oh, you're a Christian, and before they want to hear anything that you say about Jesus and the gospel, so on and so forth, uh, they point out that Christians are either inconsistent or hypocritical because we'll say homosexuality is wrong. Uh, but we'll eat shrimp or we'll wear clothes that have a mixture of two different fabrics, things that are expressly forbidden in the law given to Israel on Mount Sinai. So they're saying, well, you're a hypocrite because you pick and choose the morality that you want to follow, but your book says that you can't do this. Uh, so what's the deal? Are you a hypocrite? Well, if you're pretty sure you're not a hypocrite, well, what do you say in your defense? What do you say uh, in defense of Christians? This is what you can say, Okay. The law that God gave to Israel was specific to Israel. In the Old Covenant, uh, in the Old Covenant, Jesus fulfilled everything in the law. And now we live under the New Covenant and the law of Jesus. So you can say everything that the law was supposed to point towards has been fulfilled in Jesus, right? Matthew 5, 17, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And then he gives us a new law, what we call the law of Christ, uh, where we obey by the Spirit the commands to love our neighbors as we obey the moral norms of Scripture. So Jesus fulfilled those laws, all of it, and now we're united to him in this new covenant. 
So we are not directly bound by even the Ten Commandments, right? Even the Old Testament law, because that law was for Israel. We're not under that covenant anymore. We're under the new covenant. The law given to Moses was not supposed to regulate God's people forever. So in the book of Hebrews, again, chapter 8, verse 7 says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, so it wasn't faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So again, as you build this biblical story, there's this tension where Israel is not able to keep these laws. Israel is not able to obey in order to bring blessing. They're not able because they don't have the hearts to do so. And the prophets start talking about a new covenant that needs to come that gives them the ability to do that which they cannot do and to provide the full and final forgiveness of sins which they cannot provide for themselves and these sacrifices can't provide either. So we're looking out for another covenant because this covenant was supposed to be a teacher. This old covenant was supposed to point beyond itself to someone who could do something about it. Verse 13 of Hebrews 8. In speaking of a new covenant, which he just sort of listed the whole text uh, from Jeremiah there, he makes the first one obsolete, right? It's over, obsolete. Not because it was bad in and of itself, but it was meant to have a built-in obsolescence, right? It had, uh, it had a timeline that it ran when Jesus came and fulfilled it. What is becoming obsolete, he says, is growing old and ready to vanish away. So this old covenant with its law is fulfilled in Jesus. And Jesus, because he's a better priest, he brings a new covenant. He brings a new law. We're not under this law anymore. It's still authoritative to us insofar as it can teach us because it's scripture, but we're not bound to it uh, like, a, uh, like a set of regulations as Israel was, right? So the Ten Commandments, we are not, strictly speaking, under those Ten Commandments. They can teach us about God, uh, but they meant something for Israel that they don't mean for us today. The point of the Old Covenant was to show a need for the New Covenant, and we are under that New Covenant because Jesus brings that New Covenant in his blood. We're united to him. Now, again, the law can still teach us, uh, but it doesn't govern us. And the whole of it, the whole of the law, is fulfilled in Jesus, right? The whole of the law has fulfilled its purpose. Uh, so again, we can't uh, separate it out into different parts uh, because the Bible doesn't do that. He, Jesus brings an end to the whole law. Now, the New Testament says that Christians live under the law of love or the law of Christ. It's put in different ways in different times. So in the New Covenant... The law isn't etched on stone tablets, but where is it written? Where is the law written in the New Covenant? In our hearts, right. Um, we are no longer under the ministry of condemnation, which the law brought, but the ministry of the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3.7 The Spirit enables us to obey the teaching of Jesus and the apostles, centered on love for God, love for neighbor, lived out in obedience to God's word, right, to the commandments that we see in scripture now any questions about that particularly about the law and how it functioned in israel and how now we should think about uh, the old covenant law or even what we are to obey today any questions on that that can be uh, a little tough uh, and might be different than you've heard in the past yes sir It's a, Remember, Christ said that in this commandment, all the commandments, we talk about love your neighbor, sure. love your God, and love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. So how do we reconcile those two things? Sure. Yeah. So 
it, and, and, it, and it's not, the Old Testament law isn't authoritative in the way it was authoritative for Israel. It's authoritative insofar as it's scripture, right? It's God's word. It teaches us about God. Uh, but we're not under it as the sort of law covenant, right? Uh, we're not obligated to it in the same way. Uh, but Jesus, uh, there, there is continuity, obviously, between what it teaches in the Old Covenant law and what it teaches in the New Testament because God hasn't changed. He's the same. Um, and again, Jesus is uh, bringing this to fulfillment and saying not only this, uh, but that. So he say, you know, not only should you not murder, right, but you shouldn't be angry in your heart. It sort of intensifies what was in the Old Testament uh, at, at certain points. So there is continuity, uh, but he's saying that, you know, he'll even say, I'm giving you a new commandment that you love one another. And you're like, well, was not there a commandment to love God and love your neighbor in the Old Testament? But Jesus can say, this is a new commandment that I'm giving to you that you love one another because he's brought a whole new definition even of what it means to love one another in and through the gospel. So there is some continuity, uh, but there is also discontinuity um, as well. Any other questions? About law stuff? Yes, ma'am. Sure. Yeah. Got, yeah. Sure, 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 sure. Uh, so, yeah, kind of like uh, sometimes called Messianic Jews. or So these are, are people who believe the gospel, right? They think Jesus is the Messiah, but they still keep some of the food laws, um, some of the, the other uh, feasts and things like that associated with, uh, with Judaism, with the, uh, the people of Israel. Um, you know, I think as you talk with them, uh, it probably wouldn't be best to just be like, you know, abrasive, but to to point out that to stick with those things in the Old Testament is to sort of stick to a shadow instead of sticking with a real person. So they're, they're, they're actually like going backwards in redemptive history when there's something much more that has come in Jesus. So you're sort of, uh, you know, they would almost be like missing the forest for the trees. You know, they're thinking, oh, I need to do these things. Uh, but Jesus is actually the one who fulfills those things. Uh, there's no need for them because we have Jesus. And I, I think that someone can still sort of celebrate those things um, and, and still be a Christian. Uh, it just depends, right? Because if they slide into saying, I need to do these things in order to be right with God, or to be a Christian, you have to do these things, um, then you get into the line of, are they trusting in sort of works of the law to, to save them, or are they trusting really in Christ alone? Um, so it's, it's definitely inconsistent with the New Testament to still practice those things, because the New Testament is saying Jesus is, is much better than those things. Uh, and we have, uh, we have this fulfilled in Christ and applied in different ways, where we uh, do meet with the gathered church. So then they're getting into uh, to disobeying clear New Testament teachings. Uh, so I would honestly, a book, a book to study with him would be the book of Hebrews, right? Where it's saying, hey, Moses was great, but he was not good enough, and he pointed towards Jesus. Jesus is better than him. Uh, the Levitical priesthood, Jesus is a better priest than that. No more sacrifice. We had the best sacrifice. This so much sounded like the president there. 
the best sacrifices, the huge sacrifices, the wonderful sacrifices. Um, but yeah, we, you know, Jesus is better than those sacrifices. Jesus is better than the land. Um, so it's just kind of saying, hey, like, you're settling for second best. Uh, you're settling for less than Jesus, and that's never a good idea. Uh, so even if they are saved, um, they're not going to experience the fullness of the blessing of salvation uh, because they're sort of not worshiping God according to how he's revealed himself, how the covenants have sort of unfolded and where we land in the new covenant. Uh, but yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And that's interesting that that's like, you know people like that. You know, a lot of times it's sort of an ethereal, like if you encounter somebody. Like Brad, I think your dad's so funny because he's always like going at like, a sort, not against Catholics, but he's always sort of making application to like if we had a, a huge pool of Roman Catholics visiting our church all the time. I tell him that he's like stuck in the Reformation all the time. A service for you, I was like, hey, probably there are zero Catholics there today, but you know, you do you, man. Uh, that's a, he's just a, he's just a prod, he's just full on Protestant. Um, any other questions? That's a really good question. All right, uh, let's go on. A greater Israel, we don't have too much time. We basically have no time at all to get into this. This is the deal. Jesus is the true Israel. Israel's purposes are fulfilled in Jesus, right? Not today in the United States, right? We're basically the only country in the world that thinks this way. England, like a little bit, kind of back in the gap, but not exactly. Um, America's not in the Bible. We're not fulfilling Israel's purpose. We're not a godly nation. We're not a Christian country. We're not a city on a hill, right? Sorry, John Cotton. Sorry, John Winthrop in the 1630s. Um, that's not how this works, okay? Uh, but we also don't want to make the jump uh, directly from Israel to church, right? So there are promises that are applied to the church that were applied to Israel, right? In um, Exodus, you have Israel being called a kingdom of priests, right? Uh, a, royal pri a royal priesthood, royal kingdom. But, and you have uh, Peter calls them that in First Peter 2 as well. Uh, but there is that um, fulfillment in Jesus before it comes to us. So there are going to be differences then in how Israel function and how the church functions. So you get into that with some baptism debates where they say uh, in the Old Covenant, God dealt with uh, believers and their children. And so since the church sort of inherits the promises given to Israel, now God's New Covenant people are also believers and their children. But it misses that, that Old Covenant and the purposes for Israel fulfilled in Jesus. So now who are God's people? Everybody united to Jesus, right? Everyone who has the Holy Spirit, and that's it, period. Uh, so that's why we baptize only believers and have members of our church that are only believers, so on and so forth. But finally, uh, and we are like beyond time, you know, Trey, I was so disappointed last time I taught you guys because I cut down my words, and I was like, I'm going to stick to 25 to 30 minutes. And I, I didn't, and I felt I like betrayed Trey. I was like, I can't believe it. And then I go to the podcast and listen to or to see how long he went for his last one 55 minutes i was like you tell me 25 minutes and then you go 55 minutes like come on give me a break um but um let's think finally about the greater rest that that jesus brings so we have this idea of land and rest in the old covenant right literally a a, a strip of land uh, probably a nice uh, strip of land flowing with milk and honey right uh and the idea of sabbath rest but Jesus brings, as you would imagine, a better rest. So he's the one that says what? Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, Matthew eleven twenty-eight. 28. The rest that Jesus brings is not tied to a specific piece of geography, right? A piece of real estate, but it's an eternal rest, 
It's an eternal rest where we rest in the death and resurrection uh, of Jesus in our place. Uh, but it's also a rest that we'll experience in the new heavens and the new earth, right? So it is, in some sense, uh, tied to a locality, uh, but it's nothing on earth now. It's no uh, modern nation state, but it is the new heavens and the new earth where we'll be free from suffering, we'll be free from sorrow, and ultimately, the most important thing, we're never going to get kicked out of this land, the new heavens and the new earth, because we'll be free from sin, because Jesus has come and he has reversed the curse that Adam brought. He has succeeded where we have failed, where Israel failed, right? And has lived a perfect life and has died in the place of all those who repent of their sins and trust in him. He has raised from the dead so that we can have life and rest and have life and rest eternally with him, enjoying the Lord forever. Any questions? Any questions at all? Okay, all right, let's pray, and then you can do your thing. All right. God, we thank you that we have a new and better covenant through Jesus and his life and death and resurrection, that through his blood he secured for us uh, a final salvation, the gift of the Spirit, so that we can obey you. Uh, And we thank you that you now create in the new covenant a new covenant people, your church, where we can have fellowship with you and with one another. We pray that as we go now and, uh, and worship you together uh, as University Baptist Church, uh, that you would help us to worship you in spirit and in truth and ultimately worship you in your Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.